Welcome to Circular Firing Squad. I'm Marty Gensius, a counseling faculty at Kent State University and a host for Circular Firing Squad. We've got four members, four questions, and four answers to each question. Questions are generated from each squad member and run from the witty to the wise. Let's see who's with us this episode. Hi, everybody. Eric Perry, clinical faculty at Southern New Hampshire University. Hey, everyone. Jen Cook, associate professor, New England College. Hello, Elliot Ingersoll, professor of, um, the hell am I a professor of counseling at Cleveland State University and wearer of black t-shirts and host of Apply Topically. That was the other thing. I think I'm going to leave that in unedited, Elliot. Uh, we're missing two people tonight. Uh, Stephanie is sort of on a vacation, but the last I heard from her, she was in a minute care clinic and has been diagnosed with strep throat. Uh, I was so, just going to say, though, is it ever really a vacation when you have kids? Yeah, Either it never you really is. And end up in a minute clinic somewhere. Yeah. You know, how come dad is always grouchy on vacation? Anyways, it's uh, she's in a minute clinic. She actually she texted me and said, you know, last time I came to visit these folks, I got food poisoning. So maybe we just need to not visit these folks and and have a healthy vacation. And Gina emailed in and said she's got strep or some bad throat thing going on with herself, too. So we got a short crew tonight. That's OK. Actually, it sometimes the shows work out fast and work out really well. We're going to start with Eric, who has the first question. All right. Let's get right into it then. So what would you do when you retire, given unlimited resources? Sky's the limit. Well, this this one is not hard for me because I, I think about retirement all the time. I know it's like more than 20 years away, but I think about it all the time. So I would think I, I think I would love to buy an island somewhere out in the Caribbean somewhere, be able to deck it out the way that I want, be able to have, you know, a, a, a heliport or whatever. So if I get sick, I can get taken to the minute clinic in the Bahamas or whatever's nearby um, to be able to have that access people to clean and cook and do all that kind of stuff. I know this like it sounds kind of boring, but also to me, it sounds like so luxurious of like, I might not ever have to scoop a cat box again for my entire life, but I will still have my kitties with me. Um, I would also want to travel, you know, so when I'm, when I'm not luxuriating on my private island, <laughs> ordering, ordering books online and just constantly lying in a hammock, uh, reading, reading trashy um, mystery novels. I want to be able, I would love to be able to travel and to be able to do so comfortably if, since money is no object in all of this, um, to be able to be flying in, you know, first class and arrive refreshed at your destination rather than feeling as if, you know, you've just been put through the third dimension in order to get to Europe or wherever it is that, that I get to go, you know, so that, that would be the way I'd spend retirement. Yeah, that's pretty good. Kind of similar. First thing I'd do is go move to Canada, and then I would sort out the best way to get my citizenship up there. Uh, I would work. I would keep writing fiction, and I would probably, if legalities allow it, I would love to have a facility where we facilitate psychedelic uh, psychotherapy, and uh, it's done right. Since, as you said, money is no object, that would be that would be something I would love to do. And like you, I would love to travel. I would love to travel first class. That would be great. Or with a bottle of the right pills, either one's fine with me. First class comes in many forms. 
But uh, yeah, you know, I want to get out of the plane and actually care about what I'm looking at as opposed to crawl to the hotel room. But yeah, that's, that's my, that's what I would do. First class. I never thought about that. Yeah. I said travel. I mean, I took a note and I said travel. Uh, I like to travel, but to be able to do it first class anytime I wanted to sounds appealing. I, I, I There's probably a lot of places that I'd like to go or like to try and go, but travel, definitely. I think the second thing that I thought of was every place that I've lived in, the kitchen has been too small for my cooking desires. Now, the thing is, I don't want to move out of the house I'm in now, but we do have a smallish kitchen for the way I like to cook. And so uh, I don't know what we'd have to do. We'd have to maybe give up the living room table or something to expand the kitchen. But I would like a larger kitchen so I can do different styles of cooking and have more counter space and more utensils to work with. Yeah, so that would be the other. And then, of course, never run out of technology, unlimited technology. You know, you we, we kind of all thought about first class. And I was thinking of a Bill Maher joke. There are two types of people, those who fly privately and those who wish they could. All right. Well, park me in the wish category, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I think about this a lot. Um, but actually, the question came from having a conversation with my significant other. Uh, and we have two very different visions of what this might look like. Um, so I don't know how that's going to work out. Um, the running joke is my second wife will be fine with it. Um, but then you won't the, have the unlimited resources. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Fair point. It, for me, it's it's close to the water and lots to read um, or listen to as things go. I, I'm really into podcasts and audiobooks and you know, I'm at the point in my life where I enjoy somebody reading to me again, as opposed to doing the work myself. But I like to be close to the water. I find the thing that I miss most where I'm at now is being somewhere where water is close. So just having access to a beach, to a place to swim, sun, um, those things become more and more important for me each year. So I find we spend more and more time going to places that have that. Um, and, and I know retirement's going to have to be about that for me. So sunny, warm, and stories. That's really my retirement picture. I'm curious, Eric, where's your first wife going to be settling? Wherever she chooses. But not sunny and warm with water. Yeah, no, she um, she likes the seasons. She likes to have all four. I'm, I'm partial to one or two tops. So I, I prefer the warm. She likes them all. She might change her mind when breaking Canada. a hip comes into the equation yeah that's true yeah i'm playing the long game here jen yeah exactly i'm like <laughs> look you may you may change your mind when you see that icy sidewalk and you think yeah you know what uh six months in rehab in the hospital doesn't sound like what i'm interested in right I, I'm, I'm making notes right now you know <laughs> you do have the option to stay inside i don't but you can learn to cross country ski that sound like valid ideas i'm just not interested in either fair enough everyone's <laughs> talking about oh isn't it great the sun's out longer isn't it great the sun's out longer and i'm like oh yeah you weirdos go have your little barbecue in 30 degrees with the wind blowing and go soak up the sun it's just so gorgeous yeah what's up with all the wind and the rain lately it's it's putting a damper on my extra extra hours of sunlight right now come on now california scented if you can believe that <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, well, California's always got one for us, right? All right, I got the next question. How many times a day do you respond to work emails? And how did you land on your approach? Well, if you got your uh, circular firing squad bingo cards out, because my brain is neuroatypical, I love that phrase. It's just a little mysterious. Yeah, I don't have ADHD. I'm neuroatypical. Wait till you watch me order a bottle of wine. You won't believe it. Um, yeah, I, I respond as they come in because, now here's the thing. This is the way I am. Like People like wonder why I don't want to have a lot of conference calls during the day. Well, I obsess over them. I'm like, oh, is it time? Oh, is it time? Oh, is it time? It's not easy for me. So like when I'm typing on, I'm working on articles, I'm working on course prep, being there's an email, I'm like, oh, answer, done. So as, as many as come in a day, and it could be 50, 100, I just do them as they come. And it just, it, it, it's it's an organic flow. So there wasn't any great scheme to it. It just felt right. Wow. I am impressed with that, Elliot. I I tried to avoid doing them as soon as they come in, but unfortunately they show up on my screen and I am pulled away for a lot of them. And then some of them it's like, nah, I don't have the time to switch that much focus to deal with that, that much email. So I've gotten into a habit of flagging ones that I know I have to get back to ones that are important and ones that are going to take probably more of my time than a quick yes or no answer. I basically uh, check and flag, check and flag, and then respond probably twice a day when I get tired of doing whatever I've been doing, uh, sometimes more. Um, and what I'll do every morning is go back through the previous day's email to see if I've responded or I've ignored it and um, address it if I have to address it immediately. So I don't know. I, I started off really where uh, Elliot is and and really thought it was more productive to answer things as they came in. I kind of moved away from that because I've noticed that my productivity just really, I can't task switch that much. That being said, I, I, I got about an hour of one task in me before I need to do something else. So sometimes email will be the thing I'll jump to and sit with for a while, but I've started now organizing priority contacts so, you know, my director or supervisor or whoever contacts me, those are going to be things I get to rather quickly or kind of in the moment and everything else I let sit. I try to only hit emails twice a day, three times tops when I start in the morning before I break for lunch and then before the end of the day. It's not to say things don't come out and I don't respond in the middle there sometimes. But I have those priority contacts set so that it, you know, will flag those for me that they need to get done quickly. Uh, and even those, not every person on that list is sending me an emergency email. Sometimes it's just a notification or something I need to read or um, something of that nature. But, you know, I've tried to not to make email the thing that I'm not jumping to. That That's not the thing that if I need to move tasks, if I need to shift for my brain to do something different that that's not the thing that I do because I find it will it will eat up more time, it eats up more energy, and it's hard to switch back to things like grading and writing from that particular task. And I don't know that I have a good rationale for that. It's just, I don't know, engages in a different way. Yeah, I'm with you, Eric. I was similar that shifting back and forth is not as swift as I would want it to be, um, especially if there's like some major thought work that needs to be involved in what I'm doing. And so I 
all y'all who are mentioning like these notifications, I don't have those on, on my computer, my phone, none of it. Um, I don't, I don't do well with these little things popping up on me. There's my ADHD flag. It's like, because it, it distracts me from whatever it is I'm doing. And I've actually taken to cutting off the internet a lot of times when I'm working on things because I don't want, you know, Apple telling me how much screen time I've used this week or, you know, whatever random thing that I haven't cut off or even a calendar notification of just something that's like broadly that I need to do during the day. I'll get that on my phone. And when I and when I'm working, my phone's turned over because I don't need to see my text popping up. I don't have audio text notifications turned on because I don't want to hear ding, 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 ding all day long because again, I get distracted. So I've, I used to be like you too, Elliot, when they came in, I just responded to them straight away. I used to respond from my phone. I do not respond to work email from my phone anymore. Um, that was not any, it was no longer working for me, especially being in a fully online environment. And this sort of idea that you must respond within 45 seconds of receiving emails or Blackboard notifications or whatever, which is unreasonable. Um, It's nothing in the handbook says that we have to do that. But it online education kind of creates that expectation, which I think is an unreasonable expectation. And I see Eric nodding like we live in this online, you know, program world (laughs) where the expectations for responding via technology, um, there seems to be the expectation that you're going to do that 24-7 and on the dime. And it's just, it's unreasonable. It doesn't work. So I'm down to two, maybe three times a day, just because again, like I need to block my time. I need to be able to grade. I need to be able to write. Um, And if I get caught up in email, it's lights out. Um, It just really doesn't work. Yeah. And just, just to add this customer service thing that seems to come out uh, and I don't know that it's it's particular just to the online environment, but there seems to be this um, customer mentality for some students that, you know, I'm paying for the course. I expect a response from you. Uh, and there are these un- kind, of, kind of unreasonable expectations that come out of that. Um, you know, I post in my courses now. And when I have live meetings with students, I let them know, you know, 24 hours, I'll get back to you. I don't work weekends. You know, that's my boundary. So if you have questions about courses or course material, things come up. Um, unless by, you know, some off chance I'm working a Saturday or Sunday, which I don't tend to do, you'll hear from me on Monday. So I set that that pretty clear expectation really early on. And a lot of our due dates are on Sundays. So, you know, students need to be prepared for the questions that they might have if they're going to have them over the weekend. And they have access to the entire course. You know, so they can spend time walking through those assignments, watching the videos they post. They have the resources, but it's the mentality, I think, that bothers me that they have this expectation that it's almost like instant message. But email communication was never intended to be that way. And there's a reason we don't have students on Teams, you know what I mean, as as a part of this, because, you know, there needs to be that expectation. And in the working world for counselors, it doesn't work that way either. Um, There isn't this instant response to your inquiry or questions unless there's an emergency. And there is no academic emergency. I, you know, I fall right into that camp. So sorry to jump on top of that, but you made some really good points and felt like at least from my perspective, I needed to say it. I agree with you, Eric. We we are not in emergency. (laughs) No, I mean, but email, that's it. That's all I'm doing. I've I've either lost my phone most days or I didn't bring it. Uh, People say, what's your phone number? I'm like, well, here it is, but I'm not going to like enter your data. I'm not going to do any of that. 
And if you call, I won't answer. So email me. Yeah, I think, you know, this consumer mentality is that's for another conversation, probably even another question to go through on the show. But there definitely has been a transition in higher ed with that. And it's I don't think it's just the students who come in with it. I think that it's propagated by administrators and it's challenging to work with that. At least it is for me, because I consider being in a counseling program to be a choice and a privilege. You know, this is a choice and a privilege to take this professional course of study toward a professional degree that's leading to licensure. That that's a choice and a privilege to be able to do that. So I I think sometimes we've lost that. So I'll stop there. But the consumer mentality is is one that's a little bit challenging for me to navigate. It's it's tricky and it, it kind of feeds into this next question, which is mine. Yeah, I did a lot of studying of Amazon, everything that's published on them. I think I've read it. And that obsessing about your customers, there's a point to that I found. Our admissions exploded throughout the pandemic, and it's because of certain things we did. But you still have to have these boundaries. And if you do some things, then everyone assumes, oh, well, you'll do this too. So this leads to my next question. Uh, How do you set boundaries with unreasonable students? My response to that, and this is all I've written in terms of notes, is what's unreasonable? Um, I, I, I don't, I have a hard time filtering that. I know that I kind of have an internal reaction sometimes with students when they're asking me to do the impossible for them. And generally, it's the same way I dealt with unreasonable clients. Um, I give them a long stretch of silence um, and, and give them an opportunity to kind of reflect on what they're really asking me to do. And then we'll maybe give them some feedback as to why I can't do that or why that's not healthy for us to do that. Like for me to be at your beck and call whenever you feel you need it. So, yeah, to me, it's hard to define what unreasonable. I'm, I'm lucky I haven't run into too many students like that in my life. But generally, it feels like I'm doing more engagement from sort of a therapeutic standpoint than I am from an educational standpoint. And I'm not there to be the therapist. So, yeah, I I tend to have really direct conversations. Uh, And I I think boundaries need to be that way. I I think there needs to be really clear and well-defined boundaries. At the same time, I understand that you know, the profession is complex. You know, we talk about supervision just as an example. Supervision and counseling is not just monitoring you for tasks, right? It's, you know, the the taking care of the learning environment for students, ensuring that their needs are met, um, that they're well supported, that, you know, you provide support and resources, all those things are necessary. But there's such an emotional component to this work that I I see how students could get in a situation where they feel like that, uh, you know, they're comfortable coming to a faculty member for an emotional concern, right? Or something that comes up that isn't specifically related to their training as a counselor. And when I say directive, I don't mean mean, but I mean direct. You know, here's the ACA Code of Ethics. Here's why this boundary exists. Here's what we need. Um, if you're bumping into this thing and, and it's affecting you, you need to be open to doing what it is that you're going to do for others. And that's engage in your own therapeutic work. So when, when you say, you know, uh, inappropriate boundaries, you know, I, I think that's the one I've bumped into the most. 
our students coming and saying, hey, I'd like to talk to you about this personal thing and, and me having to go through that. There's a lot of support and resources in the literature for it. I think it makes for a really good conversation about being willing and open to doing your own work. So it's it's something that I think has to be directive. It has to be forward. And, you know, I lean a lot, like I said, into the ACA Code of Ethics for that and those types of conversations. So that's the one I think I run into the most. Yeah, I was working on trying to define unreasonable for myself um, because I was like, well, what, you know, how do I understand unreasonable? And I think that it comes down to because I tend to be very direct as well. And but I also tend to be very um accessible. Like I am accessible. I am interested. I will help them, all those kinds of things. I think what happens is is the demanding. I think that's the that's the tip off for me about unreasonable or pushing, like as you've described, Eric, with boundaries of I've already said that that's not my role or I'm not doing that. So for example, like um reading students' papers and giving them feedback before they turn it in. That's not something that I do. Um, and I have expressed that, that if you need a proofreader, go to the writing center. Um, if you want feedback on the specific assignment, the writing center might be able to help, or it might be helpful to talk to one of your colleagues in the class, you know, so use each other as resources. But I already put a lot of time into when I grade your papers. So if you are asking me for feedback ahead of time, I'm not giving that. So what I would say as a demanding student is when they know that that's my position, And then they come back and they ask for it. The same thing with extra credit. On the first day of class, I do not give extra credit. The work that you have in the class is the points are are inflated in some ways. You get points for things that you shouldn't even get points for. So there's your extra credit right there, you know. So that's not something I give. But we get toward the end of the term and I hear, oh, I'm so close to to not passing the course and I might get a C and have to retake it. Can I do extra credit. And it's like, no, you've had your chance. So I think that my, my bottom line with that, I think the Toto song, hold the line. Um, that's where I end up with the demanding. Um, and I think to myself, because our students all need different things. Some of them will write you once in a blue moon. Some of them you'll never hear from some of them you hear from every other day. And it really depends on what they're asking for and how they're asking it of, you know, how accessible we decide we will be. But at some point, you have to hold the line and think, could I and would I apply what I'm doing for this student if every student asked for it? So, for example, the proofreading papers before they're due or meeting with students weekly to discuss the assignments. Would you do that for everybody who's enrolled in that course every single week? You know, and when you start, when I start using kind of that litmus test for what I'm being asked, um, then I can kind of differentiate as the student being demanding in a way that's inappropriate. And when I say no, I wouldn't do that for every student individually. Then I know that I've either got to hold the line. Thank you, Toto. Or I need to, um, you know, do things, do things differently with the entire group if everyone is needing that, because obviously I'm missing something in my teaching if everybody's needing to have individual meetings to discuss, let's just say, an assignment. You know, it's like we're going to have a group meeting about that then. <laughs> I'm not doing it individually. So I think it's that, you know, kind of iterative process of like, what if this is about me? What if this is about the student? And trying to navigate that, because I think sometimes that introspection is necessary because we're human and we get triggered by people's needs or we get triggered by their demands or whatever the case may be. And sometimes it's warranted and sometimes it's just my stuff. 
No, these are helpful to me because I think by and large, most of it is boundaries. Um, our spring break was last week. So I graded like 130 midterms and 80 papers. And in one class, I never do this, but in this particular class, we were doing a different approach to the curriculum. So I did an open book, open note essay exam. A couple people bombed it. And I'm like, I don't even know how you could possibly have bombed that. But instead of like emailing me, Dr. I, I think we had to talk about my studying or my time in the course or something. No, no, no. I didn't get that. I got, oh, is there any extra credit? And like you, I said on the first night, I'm like, there, no, there is none. Everyone gets treated the same. What is available for credit is in the, the syllabus. But then there, every now and again, you'll get someone who's so extreme. Last year, there was a person who insisted that we or a staff member get their books for them. And I kept explaining, you know, this is part of being an adult and being in grad school. You go get your own books. And then um, they kept persisting. And I said, oh, and by the way, and I gave a list of things we don't do. It was like, we don't change the oil in your car. We won't pick you up and drive you to class. We don't approve like your diet ahead of time to see if you're going to be maximally alert when you get to class. There's all. Apparently that was snarky, but I'm like, oh, piss off. I didn't think that was snarky at all. You haven't heard snarky. Let me get started. So there's like, I think some of it's just a moment of weakness, but, but then every now and again, you get some person who's so out there and you're like, where's that coming from? Thanks for the answers. That's helpful. I've got the final question for tonight. Uh, we are doing a job search at my institution in my program. And uh, so this question comes from that. What's the best talent that an applicant can bring into a job interview for a CES position? Juggling is not acceptable, is it? I mean, it can be, I mean, knives, hatchets, what are they juggling? Uh, probably responsibility, I guess. I don't know. I, I, I thought about this question. I saw it earlier today and kind of got stuck on it. I, I think there are things that you need to be able to do. And I, I think the position itself does matter. I think there's differences between tenure track positions, clinical faculty positions, online hybrid, ground-based, you know, what it is you're doing at that institution, those skills need to be there. When you get beyond skills and those basic skills that are needed, I I, I think there are talents that I would look for. And, and I think in those would primarily be around how those teaching demonstrations, that ability to to teach and provide instruction and support and to connect and work within the faculty group. Um, I don't know if it qualifies as a talent necessarily to say that it's, it's someone who's, who would fit, but you know, has that ability to communicate is almost, it's almost a tie for me as crazy as that sounds between the, the, Talent, I think, that goes into being able to deliver course material in a way that students can digest and understand and, and be attentive to and being able to engage with that faculty group. Those relationships are complex. And I think fit is so much more important. You can learn the job, right? That If you have the basic skills, you can learn, you can grow, you can develop and get you the guidance, supervision, opportunities to collaborate with your peers. You can grow. But you, there's some things I think that you need to come in the door with, and that's that in, that ability to serve as as uh, an instructor in a meaningful way, and to really connect with your colleagues and your peers. 
Yeah. So I, when you said juggling, I was laughing, Eric, because I was like karaoke because I love karaoke. So they should really be down for that. But there's a couple other things that come to mind beyond being funny, which is first that when you have that first meeting with that person or that first meal or whatever the case may be is that you walk away from that feeling like they've always been part of the group, you know, like that they just, they just sort of fit in, you know, like you just get that sense of like, okay, this is, this, it feels like they've always been here. You know, this is a person who we want as part of the group, you know? And I, I don't know how you replicate that except or test for it, except for that you feel it, you know, that the person, you know, got into the vibe of the conversation and nobody was talking over each other in weird ways, or there weren't awkward pauses, there might have been some silences, but they didn't feel bizarre, you know, like, those are the kinds of things that you think, okay, this person is going to fit. Um, I think coming with that, though, also is having their own distinct personality, because as you described, Eric, like, you can learn the job. And I expect that you're interviewing for these jobs, you at least have base skills, right? Um, so you you wouldn't be signing up for it if you didn't have the base skills or the ability to learn it. Um, so that that all kind of goes out the window for me. Like I almost think like, well, why are we even doing a teaching demonstration? Like what we should be doing is getting a group of students, a group of faculty and going to do, um, you know, the escape room or a ropes course or something. And seeing how we all work together, seeing how the person responds to pressure, like seeing how they bounce back when they inevitably don't grab that bar they have to jump out to get on a on a ropes course, you know. And I know that sounds silly and nobody's ever doing that. But I think that that's where you see people is when they are in a natural environment doing a task with other people. Like, how do they respond? Did they take your head off? Like, did they laugh when they fell down? Like, you know. The, those are the kinds of qualities, because again, like all these skills can be learned. I know that I'm still learning so many of them in terms of like next level, you know, it's like, we're always like learning next level skills in the job, you know? So it's like, well, how are you going to respond to those things? And not just the challenges, but what strengths are you going to demonstrate in the middle of it? Because you don't want it to be, I don't think job interviews need to be a air your dirty laundry and let's hear every crappy thing you've ever done in a job. And then tell us how you dealt with it in some kind of, you know, measure of valor of these awkward moments that happen in work. Like, I don't think that's appropriate. But like, let's see who the person is, because that's, I mean, it's sort of like interviewing kids, interviewing kids, interviewing applicants for the counseling program. It's like, you want to see if they have the wherewithal for this type of work. You want to see if they have the personal qualities to learn and adapt. Like, I think that that's what I want to see in my counselor ed colleagues that I'm going to be working with on the daily. Um, and I hope that people are, you know, if I'm applying for a job, that they'd be looking for the same thing of like, do you fit with us? Because if you don't, we need to call this now, you know? <laughs> so anyway, it's kind of a little different, but that's what I was thinking. Yeah, that's that. I agree that that sense of fit and it's so hard to assess other than intuitively. Um, I think for me, I'm, you know, I'm thinking like in terms of uh, Jane Lovinger's theory of ego development, I'm looking for ego maturity and the adaptability that comes with that, just some. And what I used to do when I was chair, not a lot of people didn't like this, but I would like, I would change the schedule for the applicant and I wouldn't change their prep time. I would just say, well, this was going to be at 10. Now it's going to be at two. Cause I wanted to see how do they respond to that? And, you know, in most cases it wasn't a big deal, but in a couple of cases where it was, it gave me pause to reflect. I'm like, well, this is a very small thing. Things like this come up all the time. 
Now, on another level, I would say a musical talent or um, a card magic, something like that, because if it's a 10-year track, I don't think anyone after they get 10 years going anywhere, no one's going to move because there's just there's no economic uh, incentive for it. Uh, so you better have something to entertain each other over the next 30 years. I've just started bringing card tricks back into work because I'm like, hey, you know what? I have arthritic joints. It helps with them. And it's fun. Let's have some fun. Well, all good ideas. I um, I realized when thinking about this question, everything that I look for in a job applicant is nothing what the university looks for in a job applicant. University grants and grant achieving capabilities. They're also interested in publications. And I'm not that interested in publications. I'm not that interested in how deep someone has gone down their own personal rabbit hole in research. What interests me, um, and I always have to keep this in check because, again, I'm you're trying to service your program, but you're also trying to kind of have your own sense of connection, is if I think this person will make contributions to the program, because programs have a lot of work to do, and to have a faculty member or two sit on the side and not be part of a contributing group means that my workload goes up. And then the other thing is flexibility, being able to be flexible with the kind of changes. Elliot spoke to that, and you know, Jen spoke to personal fit, and uh, you know, and uh, Eric spoke a lot in terms of the capabilities of doing the job and making connections with students. I also like to find out how they take care of themselves. If there's, they have something that they do that keeps them in balance, and. The other question I have, and, you know, Elliot and I live in the same town, but for me, I want to get a sense whether the candidate would want to stay here. Is this a town or an area that they would feel comfortable with? And I'm not sure all communities and all educational, you know, where all institutions are, are necessarily in places where people want to stay for a long time. So I think it's not just fit with the candidate and the institution, but it's also fit with the candidate and the the location of where they are. So none of those things are uh, mount up to a hill of beans when it comes to what the university's needs are and sort of what the university's interests are. But that's the that's my answer to the question. I've got uh, a final shot question for us. Last show we did, we talked about childhood show theme songs, and it put a bunch of what I call earwigs um, in my ears. It's that sound, that that song that you can't get out of your head. But Elliot contributed. This is a question I thought we'd follow up with it. What does Barney really love or who does Barney really love and why? I'm going to say no one. Those eyes are dead and soulless. I, I think that Barney loves everyone because I'm sorry, but that song at the end where he's like, won't you say you love me too? I think he has an attachment disorder. It's pretty insecure. So like he's, he's loving everybody. He can get his hands on just hoping that somebody will say, I love you too, Barney. Well, I think he's a little loveless bastard. I do. And I think that he's probably into BDSM with a grimace from those McDonald's commercials. That's my theory on his, that whole thing. Well, you folks are twisted. You're really twisted. I didn't know how to answer this question. I thought Barney's in love with this old man. 
with his uh, pit pat, what batty, patty whack, give a dog a bone. Because he stole the damn song. That's that's it for tonight's uh, for today's episode. Thanks to the firing squad, Jen, Eric, and Elliot, who were here tonight, and our other compadres who are off sick somewhere, um, as it is. Look for some of these characters on their podcasts on the podtalk.net. You can find out more about them at circularfiringsquad.net. Our theme song is from Menage a Quad, Real Swing Shet. That's it for this episode of Circular Firing Squad. Ready, fire, aim.